Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 million people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dress, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, we have a ton of things to talk about today because uh, (laughs) some say the reckoning has begun. You know, the pandemic has pushed so much to the surface and the curtain has been pulled back and the floodgates have been opened. You know, seismic social changes afoot. And this is an incredibly painful time for millions of people right now, if not billions of people, because of course, Cass... Billions are comprised of millions, but, you know, whoever said that this sort of change was easy? And I really think that we should all take a moment to meditate, and I mean that literally, so please try to take one later today, to ruminate on the fact that right now, this moment that you are living in, at this moment, is going to end up in the history books. How we all respond in this moment is going to end up in the history books. This is it. You're listening right now to this and you are directly sitting in that moment and and we all are. So there are a few things that we would like to bring up. <laughs> so much to talk about, right? I know it's it's since we did our last fashion history now, like so so much has happened. Um, but I really want to start today um with a very positive note and a Hello, Pride Month. Happy Pride Month, everybody. This is, um, of course, um, June. It's Pride Month. So we started this week with some fantastic news from the Supreme Court, who made a decision to extend the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits sex discrimination. That has now been extended to include sexual orientation and gender identity. So Prior to this, in over 27 states in America, a gay or transgender person could be fired from their job for the mere fact of being who they are. So that has now changed. Moving forward, incredible victory. Um, It came in the aftermath, however, of the Department of Health and Services decision to retract protections for transgender patients from being discriminated against within the medical field. So, you know, one giant step forward, we still have a long way to go. But if the solidarity being shown for the Black Trans Lives Matter movement is anything, it shows us that we are all moving in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I have a I have a really wonderful documentary to recommend to our listeners. Um, it's on HBO currently. It's called Suited, and it is about this Brooklyn-based tailoring company called Bindle and & Keep. And they specifically make made-to-measure suits for gender non-conforming individuals. And it's really lovely. It's very touching. Grab a tissue. You're probably going to have a couple moments in it. Um, and Cass, I am endeavoring to invite them on the show for Ooh. next week, perhaps. <laughs> this is not for certain. But I am definitely reaching out and and see if they want to come chat with us a bit because I'm in Brooklyn, they're in Brooklyn. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, I am definitely going to check that out. I had not heard of that prior. And um, something else to celebrate this week, everyone. If you're on social media, it's been all over the news. This is Juneteenth week, so people are proposing celebrating. A lot of people celebrate Juneteenth actually instead of the Fourth of July because if you're a BIPOC in this country, what does the Fourth of July truly mean to you? 
(laughs) Juneteenth, however, holds incredible significance within the African-American community because June 19th, 1865 was when enslaved people were freed in Texas. So that was two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, but it kind of, you know, kind of ended this long battle to end slavery in America and move forward. Yeah. And technically, like you said, Cass, any enslaved person in Texas had been legally freed by Abraham Lincoln to federally freed. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but um, basically what happened on on that date, on June 19th, 1865, um, there was a, the Major General Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas, and he spread the news that the Civil War was now over, that had been over for two months, and, and that any enslaved person had legally been free for two and a half years at that point. Um, So basically a a lot of enslavers had been holding that information back um, from their enslaved people to like further um, the the free labor for like their pending harvests. So, so yeah, it's incredibly important. And actually in Texas, um, Juneteenth began being celebrated starting in 1866. Um, and there are a lot of community-centric events like parades and cookouts and prayer gatherings um, and readings and musical performances. And over time, this this holiday within the United States has really kind of developed and different places have um, developed their own local traditions. It's, it's, you know, also known in the United States as Black Independence Day. And, and and if some of you in the U.S., some of our U.S. listeners have never heard of Juneteenth, well, in New York, it wasn't even recognized as a holiday until 2004. And Cass and in New Mexico, it wasn't even recognized as a holiday until 2006. So there's a reason behind this that, that you may have never heard of it. Before. Yeah, exactly. Until and, now. <laughs> and why isn't it a national holiday, right? People should be taking this day off to celebrate, just like they celebrate July 4th, just like we all celebrate Columbus Day, which we have talked about how problematic that is. So, you know, Juneteenth, moving forward, especially in light of this year's events, I think is going to really um, solidify its place in the history books, and rightly so. Yeah. And the U.S. Senate, there has actually been some discussion in the past about um, about Juneteenth. Uh, the U.S. Senate in 2018 actually passed a resolution designating it as Juneteenth Independence Day, but it is not yet a federal holiday. Um, but that being said, and just bringing this whole conversation back to what we talk about here on Dressed, which is, of course, clothes, um, Nike is one company actually that is now giving their employees a paid holiday off on Juneteenth. Uh, Twitter, Square, Vox Media. Um, I'm going to take umbrage with this next organization that I'm going to mention. Apparently now the NFL is giving Juneteenth wow. off as a paid holiday, which is... Ooh, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I mean, it's don't get me wrong, that's a good step in the right direction, but they have a lot of crap to make up for. 
<laughs> yeah, that is a whole podcast in itself. And believe me, Ooh. other podcasters have taken that topic on. So if you want to learn more about the NFL and the Black Lives Matter movement, definitely just Google it. Yeah. And I actually have a couple of recommendations for anybody who wants to learn more about Juneteenth. Um, you can go over to the Texas State Historical Association and on their website, just type in Juneteenth. There is a much longer narrative about the history of Juneteenth in Texas. And also you can go to Library of Congress for some oral histories and other primary sources about Juneteenth. And also New York Historical Society is doing a really cool free online event um, hosted by Chaney McKnight, who's going to join us very shortly on the podcast. Um, We had a fabulous very long conversation the other day. Um, but uh, they, they are doing a free online event, and this is the event description. It says, celebrate together and learn how to set your Juneteenth table, what to do with decorations, how to plate all that delicious food, and then settle in to learn songs traditionally sung at Juneteenth celebrations. So there you go. Fabulous. Yeah. So we just mentioned Nike in the context of giving Juneteenth off as a paid day off for their employees starting this year. Um, And I want to mention Nike very briefly, Cass. Have you heard about the Michael Jordan Air Jordan 1s auction that happened a few weeks ago? I have not. Oh, well, get this. Um, There was an auction at Sotheby's where they auctioned off one of Michael Jordan's very first pairs of Air Jordan 1s from 1985. They were signed. Originally, the auction estimate on them was uh, to be like between $150,000 and (laughs) $150,000. Do you want to just venture a guess as to what that ending sales price was? Oh my gosh. I would say $20 million. <laughs> Not quite that much. But it was a lot. Uh, Two million. No, it was it it was five hundred and sixty thousand dollars. Holy moly. So it's still a ton of money. Yeah. Um I was just going for, you know, far out there, but five hundred thousand yeah. dollars for a pair of <laughs> shoes a is a lot of money. More. More than half of a million. Um, and they were actually sold to Jordan Geller, who is a sneaker collector and apparently has a sneaker museum, which he calls shoes in. Um, but I, ju- I just thought that was really interesting in the, in the uh, context of Nike as well. Yeah. I mean, we could, we could and should do an episode on sneaker culture because it is, it's global and it is so fascinating how many people have these massive shoe collections, sneaker collections. <laughs> yeah, no, sneakers are big, 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 big business. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> We might just have to get somebody that knows more about this than I do on the show. Just say. Oh, yeah. And we will. And uh, we will add it to our list. Something I want to encourage our listeners to follow, a hashtag to follow before we dive into what is going on in the fashion industry right now. I encourage all of our listeners to follow the hashtag Black Apparel Arts, which was started by Dandy Wellington, who we've talked about in our last FHN. Dandy is a jazz musician and a dandy, one of the most dapper dressers there is. Um, And he started this and he writes... 
When I first started getting into vintage and classic menswear, I looked to two major resources for inspiration, photographs and apparel arts illustrations. Both mediums were rewarding, but apparel arts was shockingly lacking in diversity. Sure, there was a porter or maid, but they weren't the subject of the piece. So I'm challenging all the artists out there to create black apparel arts illustrations. Representation matters and your work can inspire some budding historical fashion lover or cosplayer to see their style potential. And let me just tell you, people, artists around the world have answered his call. And there is hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of illustrations that uh, have tagged this hashtag that have put Black people and people of color into fashion illustrations and into fashion history. Um, So they're taking the work of famous fashion illustrators like George Barbier, um, and they're reimagining these illustrations with Black men and women. So it's done in a way that feels really authentic to the period. So it feels like it could have been a 1912 fashion illustration. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, It's so incredible. And I highly encourage everybody to check it out. Yeah. And just teeny tiny bit of history about apparel arts. Um, if you have never heard of this before, in actuality, in a related way, you actually have, because apparel arts started out as more of like a an industry trade publication for the menswear industry. Then it evolved into being Esquire magazine. And then Esquire and Gentleman's Quarterly, or GQ, merged. So this is kind of, a, that's just a little bit of the backstory about what apparel arts was. Yeah, thank you for clarifying because I actually did not know that. (laughs) (laughs) Nerd alert. (laughs) Okay, April, let's just say that the fashion industry, I mean, it's it's on fire right now. It's it's burning. And um I'm literally and figuratively. I'm just gonna go ahead and say let let it burn to the ground. It is entirely time to rebuild from the ground up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, major fashion and beauty brands are under fire for these empty, quote-unquote, performative actions, such as posting a black square in solidarity, coming out with a statement in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, but not actually acknowledging their complicity in the problem, right? So let me be very clear A lot of fashion and beauty brands are completely and entirely complicit in the propagation of systemic racism in the fashion industry. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to fashion, the intersection of race and environmental justice isn't like an obvious connection that you're going to make a lot of times. But, but, But those two things are very, very, very much connected. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, part of this fashion, this reckoning of the fashion industry and all that's wrong with the fashion industry is something we have talked about so many times on Dressed, and that is sustainability um, in the fashion industry. The the problems with the fast fashion empire that drives the economy around the world, right? So something I want to alert listeners to is the Remake Our World Pay Up campaign. So you can find them at, at Remake Our World. It's a couple months old at least, but since the pandemic started, they have been demanding that fashion companies pay their bills because it is shocking how many fashion companies, they put these orders out months in advance, as we know, they're put into production, and then they get sent to the respective stores, right, around the world. Well, because of the pandemic and because stores were shut down and a lot of these companies incomes was stalled entirely, they decided to not pay the garment workers. So you have 
tons of orders around the world, unpaid for, thus leaving garment workers in places like Bangladesh without their livelihood. So brands, examples of this, brands that have posted BLM posts or black squares, but have not paid their bills include the biggest fashion brands and companies out there. JCPenney, Banana Republic, Kohl's, Walmart, Levi's, Topshop, Anthropology. That is a tip of the iceberg as the companies who have not paid their bills. It's incredible. Yeah, and it goes even bigger than not just paying like for an outstanding order, right? I mean, at the root of all of this is, are these people that are making their clothes being paid a living wage? Most cases not. Yep. End of story. We've talked about this so many times on the show. Something like, something shocking, like only 2% of garment workers in the world make a living wage, right? So we're talking, you know, that this this is an international issue. And, and when things are international issue, obviously we're talking about the legacy of colonization or colonialist thought and colonial structures that still exist, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later, all of this comes into play in, in in terms of who makes the clothes that we wear, right? Yep. Um, it also brings into play how are those companies that are functioning within those structures, how are they trading in the environment? So when so when we say that the fashion system is complicit in like social justice and in environmental justice, it's all bound up so tight in a ball. That once you start pulling that string, um, it's 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 difficult to unwind how how tied up together that they really are. Yeah, and like you said in the intro, the pandemic is just exacerbating all of these issues and bringing all of these things that we all knew about, but maybe not actually maybe all of us did not know about them or weren't you know forced to be confronted with them like this on such a massive scale. So while the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, all of these horrible things had to happen for these issues to be brought to the surface, we are really seeing productive productive change because what's happening on social media is that people are calling out these companies and when you start speaking in your dollars when you start saying I'm not going to shop at your store because I don't believe in your ethics I don't believe how your company is run that is how change is being instituted and it it's very very clear as to how companies are responding to this that it they're actually listening and hearing so whether or not they incorporate what is actually happening and structural change is something else. But I think we are going to see a huge shift moving forward in the fashion industry because it is burning. The old structures that have upheld the industry are, are crumbling, crumbling down. And people are basically finding um, the bravery to come forward and say, you know what? I'm not standing for this anymore. Yeah. And an excellent example of that, well, Diet Prada has been doing it all along, but they're kind of became this fashion industry watchdog. If you're not following Diet Prada dress listeners, I highly encourage you to because they've done an excellent job over the last couple months. And of course, in light of the Black Lives Matters movement, especially on reporting on everything from toxic work environments and systemic racist practices experienced at companies such as Anthropology, who reportedly had secret code words for Black customers. That's all coming to the surface. And then the magazine V, whose founder and editor-in-chief, Stephen Gaughan, is actually stepping down from his creative director oh. role. At, not at V Magazine, though, but at L Magazine. He was a creative director. So he's stepping down after numerous allegations. So, Well, and he also uh, is the publisher behind Visionaire as well. 
So someone else that's being taken to task is editor-in-chief of Vogue, Anna Wintour, which is huge. <laughs> um, yep. Yes. Yeah, so Andre Leon Talley, who was fashion editor at large for Vogue for many, many years, he just recently came out with a memoir called The Chiffon Trenches, which I have not yet read, but I am putting it on my list. <laughs> um, the New York fashion critic, Vanessa Friedman, actually called his book Revenge Porn. <laughs> <laughs> Because I have many friends who have already read it and have said the same thing. Well, not exactly that, yeah. but. Well, it's basically like him putting all the things out there about like Carl Lagerfeld and Anna Wintour, right? It's like one of those tell-all memoirs. Um, for instance, he says of Mrs. Wintour, she was never really passionate about clothes. Power was her passion. And, and April, I'm sure you heard this, but he went on Sandra Bernhard's show on Sirius XM a few days ago or last week. And he said this about Anna Wintour. He said, I want to say one thing. Dame Anna Wintour is a colonial dame. I do not think she will ever let anything get in the way of her white privilege. So um, she released what has now become a heavily criticized apology. Again, not enough. She said Vogue has not found enough ways to elevate and give space to black editors, writers, photographers, designers, and other creators. Um, so yeah, that is the understatement of the year because that, um, for instance, Vogue, I think it was 2018, Tyler Mitchell, he shot the cover of Vogue of Beyonce. He was the first black photographer in 2018 in the entire history of the 125-year history of Vogue to shoot a cover for the magazine. The first black photographer. And basically because Beyonce insisted. Yep. Yep. So Vogue has a lot of work to do. And so does the fashion industry in general. The CFDA, Council of Fashion Designers of America, also put out a statement. They put forward actionable steps. They said, these are the things we're going to do to ensure moving forward um, that, you know, the fashion industry changes. This was actually met with a petition <laughs> um, signed by 250 Black professionals saying, you know, it's not enough. Um, this petition is being called the Kelly Initiative after the African-American designer Patrick Kelly. It's being led by the creative director Henrietta Galina and stylist Jason Campbell. Um, basically just, you know, taking the CFDA in the fashion industry to, to task for not doing enough and what they need to do more to not only make Black people and people of color more visible in the fashion magazine, but to make them a genuinely embedded part of the company behind the scenes. So lots of work to do. Yeah. Um, also, too, I would recommend to our listeners, um, if you can, pop on over to the Washington Post because model Beverly Johnson, I think it was yesterday or maybe a the day before, just a couple days ago, uh, wrote a really, really wonderful op-ed entirely on this topic. Um, and as you noted, maybe a couple weeks ago, Cass, Beverly Johnson was uh, the first Black model on the cover of Vogue. She basically is like, yeah, so it's been 50 years? Yeah. What are y'all doing? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really, really great article. I highly recommend it. And one quote that I found um, especially important to read, she just said that brands do not significantly invest in black designers. 
truth. (laughs) The fashion industry pirates blackness for profit. We've seen that time and time again. And then she also says, while excluding black people and preventing them from monetizing their talents. So those are three really important places where the fashion industry needs to sit up, take notice, and implement systemic change. So there are a lot of problems um, happening right now. As as we know, within the fashion industry, these have been happening all along. Um, you know, again, coming back to this issue of sustainability, you know, there are and have been people uh, taking steps forward. But I do want to mention this whole kind of like opposite sides of the coin dialogue that I kind of saw happening in the last week. Um, Gucci has come forward and said that they're only now going to show major collections twice a year, which is, which is amazing. Um, and uh, designer um, Alessandra Michele has said, I imagine those two shows a year as pillars. The symphonies where the Gucci orchestra will be in full cry, and then throughout the rest of the year, there will be etudes, nocturnes, flurries of chamber music, delicate reinterpretations and remixes of themes to provoke curiosity and sustain interest. But I want to put things in the collection when I want to, right? So it's kind of like changing that pace of fashion, which is at least one step forward. And he he went on to say, I feel like a horse start, waiting to start a race, and I hope other brands will follow. And, you know, this is all about experimentation to see if this works. And he kind of goes on to say, I know this sounds crazy, but it sounds impossible, but we're going to try it. And, and here's my question. Why is that crazy? <laughs> right? Like, why is everyone so attached to this, like, having six shows a year. I know. Why? I know. No. Money. Wait, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, 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 but there, there's, besides, right, besides money, I mean, money drives everything. But I just think that all of our, our consciousness is shifting in such a way that this is going to be the model moving forward. It has to be. Um, yep. Yeah, and 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 the 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 flip side of that same coin is the statements that Chanel put out, um, like uh, right around the exact same time, saying that they are going to continue with showing six times a year. Um, so they have two Prêt-à-Porter ready-to-wear collections a year. They have two haute couture collections. They have a Croisière or Cruise collection, and then of course their Mete d'Art. Uh, collection as well. So that's six total. And this is the statement put forward by Bruno Pavlovsky, who is Chanel's president of fashion activities. He says, in the future, we will continue to have this privileged moment six times a year. Oh, no. Oh. He could not have, have picked a worst word to use, privileged. Why don't you just put white in front of it and complete the sentence? Totally tone deaf. So I guess I guess that's what I was trying to say is like there I just saw these two like <laughs> diametric opposite kind of dialogues happening in the matter of the same week and 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 you know it's like we're not saying anybody here is like the 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 ultimate role model <laughs> to follow right <laughs> like Gucci had their own like debacles last year on, on the subject of race but. You know, here we are seeing the fashion system kind of starting to try to, uh, like, maybe do a little bit of course correcting on their own end 
Um, and we're seeing how that structure functions starting to shift a little bit, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, that shows really, like you said, two opposite sides of the coin. So you have two really high-end luxury brands, right? Gucci is choosing to respond to what is happening in the world to incorporate those actual actions into their company and move forward. And a lot of it is because they've had some very high-profile controversies like a blackface sweater, for instance. But the fact that they're willing to hire people like Kimberly Jenkins to come on and consult their company about how to move forward, that is the sort of thing we need to see start happening. And those are the type of brands that I think will survive because they're they're adapting to what the public and their consumers are demanding. I think that I think that public consumption demand, um, people are going to be real shocked what happens like in the next year or so in terms of what what um, expectations people have. I, for one, I have been trying to buy new pajamas. I'm not kidding, since the pandemic happened. And I want something that's ethical and responsible and sustainable. It doesn't have to be all three. It could be like one of those things. I don't want buttons on it. And do you know how dang hard it is to find (laughs) like ethical pajamas? Really, really, really hard. So... For you designers out there, get on it. <laughs> or send us your ethical pajamas. I'm sure there's a company out there. There has to be. You know, you don't have to send us the pajamas. Just send us your recommendations. Yes, that's what that? I mean. Send us your recommendations. <laughs> I mean, I think that only, th- hopefully only good things are going to happen. This is really positive for the sustainable fashion movement, for the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, the fashion industry is showing that they're going to respond, that they want to respond. And quite frankly, they have to respond moving forward. Mm -hmm. The old system, the old way of doing things is no longer um, sustainable. Um, I guess that's a pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I'm very excited to see what happens. um, And we're here for it. And we will keep sharing it with you. Yep, absolutely. Um, Unless there's anything else, Cass, Does that do it for us this week? That does it for us this week. And of course, we are going to put um, links to these articles in our show notes so you can check them out for yourself. Make sure and check out, um, like we said, Black Apparel Arts um, and the other different accounts and and, um, people that we've mentioned. Look it up. Um, Educate yourself. That's what this moment is really, really about. And like April said, take a moment to meditate. Take a moment for yourself and for self-care. It's all very important. Um, in, in this time. Yep. Um, once again, everyone, happy Pride Month and happy Juneteenth this week. Yes, we will catch you on Tuesday. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.